Welcome. The Leadership Lesson Podcast inspires leadership growth in everyone. We have enthralling conversations with top leaders in order to provide you with life-changing lessons. My name is Caleb Nichols. I'm a speaker, a pastor, and a family man. My hope is to inspire spiritual depth and leadership growth in you. I love to sit down with leaders from a variety of fields, hear their personal stories and leadership experiences. This creates the podcast. Enjoy. All right, well, welcome to the Leadership Lessons Podcast. Today, I've got uh, Ian Shelton with me, which is very exciting because I've known him for a long time. Uh, He's definitely a bit of a father in the faith in the Christian world and uh, has had a lot of impact on me. So I'm really excited to talk to uh, Ian today, uh, who's coming in from Queensland. Welcome, Ian. Uh, Thanks, Caleb. It's good to see you, mate. So where are you right now? Uh, right now, I'm in um, a converted shed behind our house, uh, just on the edge of Toowoomba. I've got a carpenter son. One of my sons is a carpenter, and he's made the shed um, into an office for another son and myself, wow. who um, both share this uh, house where we live. Fantastic. And you said to me before we got on that you've got a whole bunch of uh, grandkids there on the property. <laughs> uh, yes, we do. Uh, Evan and Lacey have four little children, uh, 10 and under. And so it's a great joy. And we're in a granny flat. So it's a great joy to celebrate with them. In fact, one of them had a birthday today. So we've had a lot of fun this morning, opening presents and etc. Wow. So how many grandkids do you have, Ian? Um, 15 grandchildren and four great grandchildren. 19. Wow. Hmm. wow. That's amazing. So even with your own family, we could talk about a lot about leadership today, but we want to get beyond even that. So that's an amazing heritage. And maybe maybe a little bit later, we'll talk about um, the family. But tell me a little bit about uh, your leadership journey. It's been many decades uh, so far, and I'm really excited to hear some wisdom uh, from you today, not to put you under too much pressure, but uh, what's been your journey in the leadership over the years? What does that look like? Uh, Well, first of all, I never really set out to be a leader. I just set out to follow Jesus. Uh, Betty and I were young farmers um, in the 60s and very early 70s. And God spoke to me about becoming a pastor, which at that time I was a Methodist. So I thought I was going to leave the farm and become a Methodist minister. God had spoken to me from Jeremiah 1, uh, the call of young Jeremiah. And so I left the farm with Betty and two little children, one a babe in arms, to follow Jesus. So uh, all I've ever tried to do is to hear his word, live according to it, and to follow Jesus no matter where. So it probably wasn't, uh, in the early days, leadership wasn't a discussion. Um, Methodists didn't talk about it. And uh, it was probably much later that I started to hear discussion about how to be a good leader. Initially, I just wanted to be a good follower of Jesus. That's fantastic. What, what a great answer. And, and I think it's so powerful, even for leadership, um, you know, that there's something uh, greater than yourself that you're following. And, you know, as, as, as you know, I'm a pastor as well. And it definitely a similar story. Uh, I'm a, I only set out to uh, try and do what I felt God wanted me to do. And then with that has come the privilege of, of people follow you and people listen to you and things like that. So, so what that's fascinating point. Ian. what was it like in the early days when you were when people were pastors or in the Methodist movement or back in the 60s and 70s? What what was it considered if it wasn't I'm an influencer, I'm a leader, which is a very, uh, you know, it's today, isn't it? It's all about the brand. It's about being a position. It's about who who follows you on social media. But what was it like back then? Well, I was fortunate growing up. I had a good father who always took me to the little Methodist church on the corner of our farm that my grandfather had built as a pioneer. So I was very fortunate and very fortunate with Methodist ministers who I suppose in retrospect were good leaders, but um, more fatherly leaders than the way we think of leaders in the traditional, particularly Pentecostal charismatic churches of today they were more fatherly leaders and they were just lovely people good good men Um, then we had an amazing methodist minister who ran a youth movement across queensland with thousands tens of thousands of young methodists uh, flocking to camps 
Um, many converted. I saw, you know, sometimes whole camps converted back in the wow. early 60s um, there. And out of it, um, I guess I was taught, and now in retrospect, leadership because they gave me responsibility. And good fathers will always encourage their spiritual sons or natural sons to take responsibility and to have a go. And so in retrospect, I was very encouraged by that. So that helped me a lot. And so the journey went on from there. Wow. And what was some of the first responsibilities that you were given and, and, and how old were you around that time? Well, some of the early ones was in, when I was a very young teenager going to a camp and being told I could lead a group of 10 uh, other campers. And then that was not only uh, that we had full of competitions, including spiritual fun, uh, games, etc. Uh, things that had point tables um, that you everybody had to see which had the best team. And so uh, I didn't, in retrospect, I see that really honed my um, whatever gifts I didn't even know I had. Uh, I just did what I was asked to do. Then back in my little Methodist church in a country town called Mergen, um, they just gave me responsibilities to um, whether it was in Sunday school leadership or the youth leadership. When I went to high school, we had a youth group of about 80 and uh, we started producing a little um, newsletter for them and to give leadership and uh, had a little revival amongst ourselves. So all of these yeah. things taught me lessons that um, and brought forth lead gifts that in those days you, you weren't aware of it. I was just doing what I was yeah. asked to do and found that somehow mostly it worked. Yeah, yeah. So you could just kind of do it. You gave things a go and you could do it. And you started to realize you've got a bit of a knack for it. And you did, did, did you did you mind being up the front and under pressure a little bit? Or did you find you uh, you, you relished the challenges? Um, look, I think in retrospect, I grew up as an insecure young man. I was the oldest son and dad was a good, very good dad. But he wasn't the sort of a dad that affirmed you. In fact, I never heard a word of affirmation from him until um, my um, wedding day, actually at 22, I think. Uh, wow. he, but uh, he was a person that expected you to take responsibility and probably would growl if you um, messed it up. Uh, but he, you know, on, on, as a farmer, everybody had to accept responsibility. So uh, off we, we just accepted that and, and did it. So yeah, look, um, uh, I, I think uh, in spite of my insecurities and natural shyness uh, and lack of some gifts, especially in music, which was a big drawback when you were trying to lead a lot of young people who love music, uh, <laughs> I found um, at times, um, yeah, I felt very insecure. But somehow, overall, uh, I had gifts of being able to connect people, bring them together and get things happening. Yeah. You're definitely quite a, a networker and gatherer, which we'll, we'll maybe talk a little bit about later. And yeah, that, that, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. What, where, so you look at leaders today, young leaders today, uh, how is it different to your experience? So what I'm hearing is it was a bit more, you know, country, uh, 60s, 70s, gruff, dad. Uh, you, just, you just sort yourself out, grow up, take responsibility and get on with it. Uh, how do you think it's different today for young leaders coming through? And do you think it's better today or do you think the uh, path to leadership is maybe too easy? Uh, no, um, I mean, I spend all my time uh, visiting and talking to pastors all over the country in towns and cities everywhere and around the world. And look, in many ways, it's harder. Uh, I think the uh, model of modern pastors is become too much the CEO model rather than the family and fatherhood model. Mm. And so I think that's become very difficult. So CEOs are called to perform, to really put on, I suppose, if I can say it carefully, a good show, attractional type churches and to produce results. And most mm. of the conference speakers and the book writers are those that have been successful in their ministry, raised a large church or, or whatever they might have done. And so that's that's been uh, a, probably a model that for the majority of pastors is an, is an impossible model to follow because uh, first of all, only a few people have those sorts of rare, wonderful gifts and I thank God for them. Most of us uh, have other gifts, but more the point is that 
our heavenly father is that right just that our father and first of all we're family first of all we're natural fathers and mothers and we're spiritual fathers and mothers and we have an extended family not just the nuclear family but an extended family and so um in the context of that i think leadership is forged in the multitude of counselors with many fathers and mothers around more circular than pyramidal and i think the ceo model is too pyramidal with somebody at the top calling the shots uh, rather than more circular where we love one another recognize one another support one another and leadership gifts um, emerge and are recognized mutually wow it's just such a great point Ian. the phenomenal wisdom and insight there and uh i think you're so true something that i've I've grappled with um, as a senior pastor is exactly as you're saying the, the, the skills required to do the job well are, are so broad and, and so unique, like you say, that it really does create uh, an impossible scenario for most. So yeah. in our kind of Pentecostal uh, church world, um, as you were saying, it's kind of the expectation that there's uh, excellent, competent leadership ceo type leaderships that understand governance finances raising up young leaders building teams blah 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 but then there's often a expectation to be a fantastic speaker and preacher and communicator which is quite a skill that not a lot of people have and then thirdly there's probably that other side that you're touching on to be pastoral uh to be patient uh to be to be unconditional in your love all the time to be soft to be gentle and it's almost like those traits you know i, I doubt there's one person that has all of those things uh, i think we try to build those skills and what have you um like for me for instance i'm not a bad communicator and, and speaker i'm a fairly good leader and i think people find me a confident leader but i'm definitely not naturally bent towards the pastoral kind of soft gentle side so i've had to really learn to let that go a little bit and let people who are good at doing that really play that role in our church and i've focused my energy the last five years a lot more on speaking and things like that and that's led to things like doing this podcast because then i'm trying to do what i'm good at and let other people do uh the care you know that i do but I'm lucky because I've got a few staff and I've got some really mature pastors in my church. A lot don't have that. So so my question is, how do you think that maybe is impacting the church negatively? Or where is that letting us down, this kind of CEO um, pyramidal model as opposed to the circular family one? Where, where are we missing it and how is that hurting us at the moment as the church? Yeah, no, I think you've made a good point. Uh, Caleb, um, it's the impossible job description. We're expecting pastors to um, do too much and to have too many skills. And of course, you're fortunate with a larger church to be able to have paid staff and no doubt good volunteers uh, there. But most churches in Australia are smaller and the one pastor is fortunate if he's full-time paid mm. and let alone having um, paid support staff. Uh, so it's a it's a very difficult scenario, and I think um, <laughs> you know that I suppose I'll probably just make this point. A good friend of mine who's mentored many many dozens, up to a hundred pastors across Australia, some of the largest churches, he has told me that the majority of pastors have a level of depression um, over their role. He he would say about a third of them on prescription antidepressant drugs and wow. probably another third feeling pretty low and bad about themselves because they're trying to live up these up to these expectations and also this in a season where church growth isn't um really um just not really happening even in some of the larger churches by and large so it's a difficult season and i think the paradigm we've lived in has been good in the past but now is the time, I think, to rethink what we've done and how we can do it better. What has God got for us? Because God's not going to leave our wonderful pastors all over this nation to hang out and dry. He, he loves his church. He loves the leaders that he's raised up. And so I think God is bringing forth from his word a beautiful new paradigm where pastors can once again flourish in corporiety. Wow, that's fantastic. But can you tell us a little bit more about 
that? Like, what do you think that that would look like on the ground in this 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 new season for the church, this new season for pastors and 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 leaders? What would a guy like myself uh, or a younger guy starting a church, you know, what would that look like in, in this new? Uh, I suppose you're suggesting here we need a better model. Obviously, as Christians, we know that the Word of God, the Bible, uh, we see that as unchangeable and eternal. Uh, but but we struggle, don't we, Ian, in the church world to change our models, to change our paradigms, to update our tools. We're very often we get mixed up between the principles and 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 the ministries and what's negotiable and not negotiable. And often the church can be uh, fall into the problem of thinking the way that we do things, the way we do our songs, the way we run our ministries uh, is actually the Bible and is actually the eternal word of God. And sometimes we're quite. Uh, slow on the uptake, but I think you are touching on something here that I definitely agree with and would love to be a part of uh, helping the next um, move in the church in Australia, I suppose, pivot. I know we all hate that word at the moment, but it's that kind of pivot or that sideways movement to be to be more effective. So, so, so what do you think that that would look like practically? Can you give us some examples? Well, in a word, it will be disruptive because the Lord, uh, I think, as well just looking historically every great reformational period of history has been very disruptive to the past paradigm in order mm -hmm. to um, bring forth the new paradigm and uh, i'm very aware that when i was a young farmer my call into ministry came from jerry jeremiah one and if you read that a few verses down you see that his call was very disruptive he is called to pull up pluck out tear down before he could rebuild. And in a sense, look, I don't mean to uh, to destroy people's lives or anything like this, but I think we're going into a season where we've got to relook at our ecclesiology. In other words, how do we do church? What is church? I mean, in the Bible, there's no such thing as the local church have it today as an institution with a senior pastor, leadership group, and maybe assistant pastors around him. The Bible only knows one church in every city or community or town. Now, many congregations, uh, but we, we somehow, if I use the word fear, it's almost like we don't want to take the risk of unity and diversity, of reconciled diversity, as Peter McHugh, a wonderful pastor friend of ours and yours, no doubt, uh, would say, because the trouble is uh, one church generally is a bit monochrome. Uh, it's birds of feather flock together. We're all similar. The senior pastor sets the, the vision, the, the, uh, the, the tone. That's a great answer, Ian. I uh, just love it. My thoughts around it are uh, similar. I'm really, I, I think there is a new season in the church. Uh, I would like to be part of that new season. Uh, the last couple of years I've been digging into looking at you know, what do we do differently? Because uh, the, the church in Australia is going backwards and getting smaller. So so what my question for you is, what would that practically look like in going forward? Uh, what yeah. does a change look like? What does a new model uh, look like in the church? Look, in a word, it will be disruptive. Paradigm changes historically always have been. And I guess my call to ministry as a young farmer from Jeremiah 1 of course, Jeremiah was called to disruptive ministry to pull down, pluck up, tear down before he could rebuild. Now, that's not to hurt people or to destroy people, but hopefully to show a better paradigm. And I, I guess the uh, heyday of um, things here in Toowoomba is that when many pastors started to learn to pray together, flow together, love one another, support one another, and, you know, I can re remember helping each other in in our marriages with praying for each other's children um, and then discovering the diversity of gifts, Betty and I in our own marriage challenges, going to another pastor and his wife for help and support. And then of course, out of that, um, developing a strategy for our city. So there was something wonderful in the corporate nature of the church because in the Bible, local churches as we know it today as an institution, organization with a senior pastor are unknown. It was the church of the city in reconciled diversity and diversity is a strength and uh, i think unfortunately local churches can only attract similar people who obviously follow the senior pastor 
but we're, we should first of all follow Jesus and embrace the diversity of the whole church of the city. Now that's got some pain, that's got some challenges, how you can navigate differences, theological differences, practical differences, uh, liturgical differences, etc. But there's a beauty in it, and that's what we found in Toowoomba for many years, just the beauty of our unity and how when we got together as uh, combined services with big numbers of people, how the pastors, one uh, service, we all repented to the to the combined service of the, of the combined congregations of the city for bad pastoring and ask their forgiveness. And it just brought a new humility and, and, and a general repentance into the city. And out of that, all sorts of mission into the city started to flourish. So it's a new day and a new paradigm. And I'd love to see pastors and churches embracing something a little wider than just their local churches. Yeah, definitely. It, it, it does. It sounds amazing. And I, I understand what you're talking about and people that understand the Toowoomba story and the move of God there. And I think it was more the 80s and the 90s and stuff would, would really get that. Um, it does seem like a bit of an impossible vision, though, Ian, because I think you've rightly said um, the local church has become somewhat institutionalized, which creates, you know, it, it does create, I'm sure you would agree, some positive things, a big strength that brings accountability, it brings financial accountability and things like that. Um, but these are not the things of the kingdom. These are not the things that I suppose progress the gospel. Um, maybe they're required and important, but but have they become the walls, the good parts of being a healthy, well-run organisation? Have they actually started to become, is this what you're saying? They've started to become the barriers or the walls to the actual higher purpose of uh, the gospel in different cities and regions. Uh, look, I love the local church and I love my own local congregation and I'm not suggesting do away with them, not at all. I think, uh, uh, look, in the Bible, there were multiple local congregations in every town and city from what we can understand and historically uh, says that as well. So I love the local congregation. All I'm saying is that we have become a bit siloed, institutionalized, and we've mm. put up barriers and even competitive barriers against brothers and sisters and other churches around about us. You know, people go from church to church often, or some do, and it's not always a healthy climate. What, all I'm saying is that the beauty of God is seen in its fullness in, its, in the body. Mm. Uh, and so to, to discover unity, you're right, it's an impossible vision in the strength and wisdom of men or of mm. humanity. We, we won't be able to create the unity of the body in, in a community. Jesus said, I will build my church. And mm. so it's, um, it is an impossible journey, but it starts with humility at the foot of the cross and a lot of love, a lot of patience in starting to build. What does it take to see some level of unity in a city and encourage our people to think like that too? You know, the Fantastic. beauty of God is seen in the whole body, not just in one local congregation. Yeah, no, it's fantastic and so true. What what maybe what what would be one or, or two or three things that really crack this open and allow this unity um, to to begin? Like where where would you start if you're starting at ground zero? You're a pastor. You're in a city. What do you usually uh, suggest? Uh, well, I suppose it takes a revelation of God's word that God has something more for us and that what we've got was fine for the past, but won't be for the future. Uh, so in, a, in a one sense, we need a little bit of holy dissatisfaction, thanking God for what we've got. And many local churches are doing wonderful things, of course, thanking God for that, but saying, God, this is not cracking it. We're losing ground culturally. And I've heard you talk about uh, the issues of culture. We're certainly losing the culture across our nation mm. and our cities. Uh, but we're also not really gaining numerical ground. So there's, there needs to be some a bit of a reality check. Hey, God, we're not doing all that well. What have you got? It's not God's intention that the church is with us away over you know, the next 50 to 100 years. We don't want to give our grandchildren uh, something that's uh, lesser than what we've um, experienced. We want to give them something more and a, and a better journey to Jesus. So mm. I, I, I think it's a theological issue. It's a satisfaction or dissatisfaction issue and then it ne needs some courage to step out of the current paradigm and to perhaps embrace 
uh, and take risks because we could fail and we probably will before we get it all right as we step forward. So it, it will take a theological difference, a revelation, some dissatisfaction and some courage. It's great. I love it. So something that you've really impacted with me with over the years, Ian, is stepping out, as you say. And uh, I now have set Fridays uh, around lunchtime uh, aside every week to make sure that I'm either having a coffee or having a phone conversation with a pastor outside of my church, either in my city uh, or, or one that I network with across Australia. And, um, uh, and, and you probably encouraged me to do that at some point, I'm sure, because a lot of that thinking and paradigm change has definitely been because of your uh, influence and the Movement Day uh, influence. And so I really appreciate that. Uh, it is a great challenge, though. And if I'm really honest with you, uh, it's and I think I've shared this with you before, it's very difficult for me, for other pastors, um, with your responsibilities that you have week to week, and especially I've just had a fourth child and you know I'm in lockdown as well. So there's a couple of barriers at the moment, but it is a challenge just to lift your head up uh, think beyond your own responsibilities, your job, you get paid um, to do this job as a pastor and to really, really look to God. I, I think it's a great point. It's got to start in prayer. It's got to start with a revelation. The Holy Ghost will always have some strategy despite the barriers that will move things forward. Uh, but I can see where the challenge is and I can see where you must spend a lot of your time talking to pastors and churches, trying to help them uh, get their head above water, uh, see the bigger picture. Um, it's really, really good, but I totally agree with you, Ian, and I, I hate the pain of it, but I love the fact that things aren't working in Australia. I love the fact that we're going backwards in the Western world because only that pain and that disappointment, that dissatisfaction will produce uh, a change because we know as human beings, we don't tend to change when we're on mountaintops and when we're high-fiving each other and things are going well, we tend to change when... Uh, things are working and uh, and not going well. So, so how do you how do you get people together on this point? How do you you, you mentioned earlier one of your early gifts as a young leader? You realised a bit of networking, gathering, and I think you're you're the master at this. To be honest, uh, you fly all around Australia talking to diverse groups, pastors, churches, different denominations, bringing a level of uh, helping, I suppose, to usher in a level of unity. Uh, you know, what's the secret? How do you do it? What, what, where do you start with those things? Well, um, look, uh, I, I'm thankful God's given me a revelation of the cross. Uh, you know, Luther said the cross alone is our theology. And um, if, you know, Paul said death works in me, that life might work in you. So I suppose early on God spoke to me that to the degree I lay down my life, for the kingdom, to that degree, he will release blessings to others. Mm -hmm. um, and somewhere along the line, uh, I feel blessed uh, as well, but that's not the goal or the aim. Uh, look, so, uh, and, and another word God gave me early on in the early 70s was that not only was I called to be a catalyst, uh, which is, is kind of a modern way of saying what I've just said about the cross, uh, but the whole, our whole little congregation was called to be uh, catalytic. That means we gave ourselves to um, others to see the producing of something better, which is what a catalyst does in a chemical reaction for those that knows no chemistry and, and itself loses its own identity because uh, our identity should be Christ. And what we want in our city is for Christ to come forth, not a ministry or a church, but Christ. And Christ comes forth when he gets all the honor and all the glory and uh, his children lay their lives down to something bigger. So that was the early challenge to me. And so in one sense, our church always suffered in the way that perhaps we would think traditionally that, you know, the pastor should give himself to the church and grow the church and bless the church. In many ways, I probably was a poor pastor in the usual way of thinking. And probably our people suffered. And, um, you know, eight years ago, we had a real difficult time in our church and maybe it's, partly because of that reason, and I accept the responsibility for that. But I've always had to follow Jesus and say, Lord, you, if you disrupt my life, I trust, um, even with my failures and my faults uh, that, um, and my missteps, uh, that you'll receive the glory in the end. And I suppose through all the struggles and strains of 50 years of ministry, 
uh, I've seen every painful season bring forth new fruit, new shoots. And so I'm just thankful to follow God. Now, a little bit more practical, I've seen pastors who laid down their church for three months and just go and meet with other pastors every day. And wow. after three months, started to build a sense of unity. I was wow. talking to one pastor, in, um, a young guy in, in the US, an old businessman paid him for a year to have 200 one-on-one discussions with pastors and political leaders and influence in their city. And out of that former team, that could bring transformation to the city. Wow. So in one sense, we've gone beyond just unity and prayer. And I try to encourage pastors to center around what does it take to take the gospel into the city? And mm. I just encourage them to, on two things, celebrate what God's already doing through you all in your city, and then accelerate what God's doing in your city already by mutual collaboration and encouragement and um, support. Fantastic. So let, let me just capture that. So that was celebrate and accelerate. Is that right? Celebrate what you've already got and yep. then collaboratively accelerate what you're already doing. Wow. Fantastic. And it's a great, it's a great paradigm, just a simple uh, two-step process there. So celebrate, yep. um, be positive, get behind what's already going, capitalize on what's already working yep. and then uh, accelerate those things, uh, build them, gather momentum. I think it's great. It's amazing. Like you can talk strategy, you can talk, you know, what you do in across Australia, you can talk the kingdom of God, all these things, but the, the simplicity of it as well, as it really just comes down to simple communication, talking, bit yeah. of honesty, bit of coffee, having a beer, something like that. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about a bit about that? Like just that, I love the on the ground, the earthy stuff, you know, the practical yeah. stuff. Like, where do you see the best connections between leaders, between pastors? Like, what are they doing? How are they connecting well? I love that story you just said there about the pastor going around the city, uh, having 200 meetings or taking three months off just to connect. Like, like tell us more about that. Uh, look, I'm, I'm thankful I'm connected uh, in Movement Day right across the globe. And one of the joys over the last particularly 12 months through the COVID season I've been Zooming with city leaders in um, cities all over the English-speaking world, US, England, South Africa, New Zealand, et cetera, just to hear their stories and learn their secrets. And wow. uh, those couple of things I've quoted are from those stories. But look, all over, uh, e even in Melbourne, I love what's happening in uh, the city of Whitehorse uh, under the Baptist pastor, Alan Dumont, and the wonderful team. And they've hired a young lady, Kieran Pell, uh, to give leadership there. And so that enables the pastors not to be free of ha having to spend more time in their unity and mission into Whitehorse. And she organizes all that. So that's happening quite often now around Australia and around the world. So mm -hmm. in, in Nottingham in England, for instance, there's only five pastors that get together regularly as spiritual leadership over the city. And they realize that as pastors, and most pastors don't have real strategic apostolic gifts, some do, uh, but they were spiritual leaders. They heard God for the city. Then they developed a separate strategic team to develop strategies for the city. Then they developed a third team separate again and called an implementation team. Wow. And um, imp to implement the strategies uh, that flowed from the spiritual download that the key pastors got. So the mm. key pastors, all they had to do was seek God together and then release it to the strategic people and the implementers. And so, and all sorts of things to helping the poor and connecting with the city councils and all sorts of things were happening across the city because it was a devolved model that released marketplace leaders, young leaders. Uh, one of their leaders is a young lady, Hannah Buck, who leads 40 non-for-profits to ensure that um, needy people don't fall through the crack in that city. And so all over the world, there's many strategies. In Modesto, California, a young youth pastor got dissatisfied that nothing much was happening in the city. Pastors weren't getting together. Um, people weren't reaching out beyond their four walls. So he, I mean, through a strange set of circumstances, he started a, a, a volunteer day one day of the year. Initially, nobody turned up, but God challenged him and said, don't go and serve the city, serve with the city. And so then he started to invite non-Christians 
talked to the city council and chamber of commerce and said, we all want a better city. Why don't we work together and see how we can volunteer to make the city a better city? And he thought the first Saturday, just one a year, uh, he might get 100, 1,200 turned up. Wow. Now regularly he's getting seven and 8,000 people, Christians and non-Christians turning up to improve on the city, to fix up the city parks, to help the schools, and to do all sorts of things. And then volunteerism has broken out all over the, the city over the whole year. So I wow. said to him, I said, um, Jeff, but does anybody get converted out of that? And he laughed because everybody asked him that question. <laughs> and he said, we teach the Christians how to witness to the non-Christians who they're working with as they fix gardens or whatever they're doing. And yeah. he said, heaps have come to Jesus and churches are growing and the pastors who were a bit um, against what he was doing initially are now coming on board and unity is growing. In other Fantastic. words, serving the city has brought unity and it's a reverse process where in the past we were but more and more I'm seeing that as people get out and serve the city, love the city, um, unity happens because people are more concerned for others than they are for themselves. Yeah, brilliant. Oh, what a great story. I love that. So do, do you think that there's um, some secrets there, some, some, some new uh, ways of doing things when it comes to evangelism? Yes. Uh, I think um, you've seen a lot more than me, but my um, humble understanding of the, uh, I suppose you might call it, um, the evangelistic history of the last few decades, it's been kind of opposite to that in a way, I would say. It's been a lot more uh, confrontive, uh, a lot more on the streets, uh, maybe more pushy. And I think even our culture here in Australia has probably reacted to that, um, what they would see as an overreaching or a not listening and a forcing our beliefs on them. Um, is, is this a new strategy, a better strategy, maybe a more godly way to actually not aim at conversion, uh, but aim at, at what you would say, blessing the city or aim at a, a higher goal of loving all people despite their religion, their beliefs, and then just seeing what God would do. Is, 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 is that what you're trying totally. to suggest? Yeah, you're totally right, uh, Caleb. I'm seeing this more and more that uh, the old forms of strategy, you know, like crusades and tents or even the stadiums um, have limited value and teaching our people to witness. Most people are too fearful and don't know how to do it properly and fail at it. And obviously uh, the only evangelism that succeeds a little bit is the attractional churches to some degree, but around the world, uh, people are discovering that as we serve others, do good to all men, and especially the household of faith, uh, or let your light sh so shine before men and women that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven, Jesus said in Matthew 5. So in other words, we're learning to do good works in Jesus' name to bless others, and that builds a bridge because our culture has become anti-Christian, um, and so pushing our line is not working. Uh, it just, well, it's just not. It's getting a bigger reaction. I was talking mm. to a guy from Portland yesterday. In fact, we uh, interviewed him on, on Movement Day. And he was saying they've learned to serve their school community and uh, even their gay mayor and uh, uh, other people who are very anti-God, anti anti-Christian. But their service of their schools and their community and their city widely uh, has broken down the barriers and they're seeing breakthroughs. So the answer to your question, yes, there is a new paradigm of evangelism. And as we learn that, uh, something amazing will happen. In Whatcom County in, in Washington State, uh, they're just seeing thousands of people coming to the Lord and it all began uh, not with evangelism as we know it, but actually a prayer strategy that then broke out into a service strategy that then brought people to the Lord. That's awesome. That's fantastic. I'm, I'm, I'm glad I'm, I must be on the right track then, Ian. So you'll be proud of me. I've actually been really, st I'm frustrated that we're in lockdown here in Melbourne. We've had something like 230 days of lockdown now. It's heading towards a year. It's just crazy. But I've got this uh, sermon series that's been sitting there that I don't want to do online. I want to really wait till we're back a bit with our people. But I was going to call it something like, 
um, the new way of evangelism or the new way to do evangelism because I totally agree with you and I feel like uh, my church and our people, we need just a total mindset shift. We need a total recalibration on what it even means. And um, and, and, and where before the, the culture was a lot more, um, I suppose, Christian in its ideals and um, the leap into Christianity maybe wasn't as big a step. Now it is becoming quite a gulf um, between the mainstream culture and what we believe. And so you need a new strategy and you need a new approach. And, um, and that's what's important. And that can't be about uh, conversion. Uh, that can't be the goal. It needs to be about uh, greater values, greater kingdom of God values, like love and service and uh, building up all people. And I suppose believing that God uh, can touch all people in, in, in any way that he wants to. It doesn't have to be through the ways that we uh, have been touched by God or the ways that we understand. Uh, there's many, many different ways. God is God. He can move in all kinds of uh, different ways. So it's good. I, I really I really agree with you. And uh, I really hope that this is something that uh, impacts the church. And I feel very inspired again by the um, by what you're doing and um, the fact that God has a heart for the city. So can you tell yeah. us a little bit about your organization, Movement? Uh, that you're yeah. involved in movement days that the global uh organization you're involved in it's a fascinating thing yeah look just before i do one thing that we've discovered probably the women discovered at first in terms of evangelism that um the they have a little statement the harvest is in the pain mm. and so uh we've got groups called city women that are forming around australia and you've heard Letitia speak and uh, they encourage women to see where the pain is. And of course, women uh, really detect, feel, and want to do something about pain, perhaps more than men do. And so uh, as they reach out to women and girls who have suffered a lot of pain, abuse, domestic violence, and whatever the situation is in the schools, and I mean, they go into the brothels and strip clubs and discover where the pain is, that's where we're seeing quite a few people coming to the Lord. So just that little thing as a comment um, to the question before. Um, Movement uh, Day actually began in New York City about 10 or 12 years ago. And the, uh, the spiritual fathers of it are two men, Tim Keller, a Presbyterian minister, who's probably the theological spiritual father. He's coined a phrase called a city gospel movement, written a lot of books that are available in Kirong. Mm -hmm. um, uh, about a city gospel movement is churches collaborating around the gospel to impact their cities. Uh, the other leader was Mac Peer, who's very strategic. And uh, he's um, gone on to be the main leader of Movement Day globally. He's the founder. He's not the CEO of it anymore. There's um, another brother that does that, but he's our founding spiritual father, if you like, and always speaks a lot of wisdom. He's amazing, his strategies, uh, very succinct, very powerful, very direct. So it began in New York City. I was I went there in 2013, actually to another conference. I hadn't heard of Movement Day and found myself at Movement Day uh, in in center of Manhattan on Times Square. Quite shocked for a little Toowoomba boy in that big <laughs> place. Uh, it was a, quite a shock, a culture shock. Uh, but amazed to see that the Church of New York were gathering to celebrate what God was doing, and accelerate through uh, st strategic. Uh, action, uh, the work of the gospel across the city. And in short, probably in 20 years, they've um, gone from a very low church attendance, 1% or so, up to over 6% and growing exponentially year by year. Uh, so they think time they get to 10%, they'll have a tipping point. So uh, it's been quite an amazing strategy. So uh, quickly, people all over the world were coming to that, hearing what God was doing through a collaborative approach to taking the gospel to a, even big cities. And so Movement Day is spread all over the world now. And so I have the joy of uh, connecting with uh, leaders in, who are doing this in every continent. And we learn together, grow together. In Australia, we have a team of about eight uh, that uh, meet on Zoom uh, every couple of weeks and connect with um, uh, with the leaders across the city. Our, our simple vision is that Australia has got 540 LGAs. I um, mean, Melbourne's got 32, for instance. 
and our heart and our vision is to see a city gospel movement in every every LGA, every city, every town, every village. And the simple way of doing that is to encourage the current leaders to gather, collaborate, and take the good news in word and deed into their community. So that's the simplicity of it. Oh, I love it. It's a great, it's a great vision. I, I, it's a global vision. It's Australia-wide vision, so it's powerful. I was looking at your website, though. I noticed that no one on your team is from Melbourne. Uh, no, that's true. Um, we haven't tried to be representative. We, I guess I need to humble myself and apologise. But we, we, we work with people in Melbourne because the team is really um, just there to enact the strategy that the real team are those that are actually doing it on the ground. And, um, you know, I would see a guy like Craig Petty, I shouldn't drop names in Melbourne, is just starting to work for Compassion, was assistant pastor, of course, of Stairway, has a great heart, not just for the Compassion vision, uh, but the we're, we're forming partnerships with a lot of other ministries now, and Compassion is one of them, and it started right. in Perth, where Compassion and the Unity Movement, or Movement Day, work together, where now Perth has 30 LGAs, they now have um, unity groups uh, through the working of compassion and other groups in 29 of those 30 and soon the 30. Wow. Um, unfortunately, Melbourne doesn't have a lot yet, but got a few. I mean, you, you've got some brothers and sisters that meet there in Frankston. And, and of course, the Whitehorse folks are quite developed. And there's others too, out in the Yarra Valley and others. Mm -hmm. So the real team uh, are the heroes on the ground. And our <laughs> role is to be their cheer squad. I was only teasing you. I just uh, I looked yeah. at your website. So I can just give Ian a little jab in the ribs with this one. So, <laughs> but we have a lot of listeners, Ian, who aren't Christians, um, who listen and 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 look for leadership stuff. Like maybe if you could switch for a moment, you're talking about networking, Australia-wide strategy. You know, what 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 are some tips for a leader who's maybe not doing that within um, the Christian world, or maybe they are a believer, but they're in a different industry um, where you don't maybe um, ha have as much opportunity to pray uh, with other people in that industry. What are some of just some general leadership principles that work when you're trying to, I suppose, grow a movement and strategize and bring people together and unify? Um, well, first of all, uh, well, it's a good question, Caleb, and I don't know if I'm qualified to answer that. Uh, well, you're well um, qualified. <laughs> been too long in the pastoral world. Uh, look, a, a leader, number one, isn't there for himself. It's not about himself. A leader is there for one reason only, to see the people around them built up and um, become more effective and more fruitful in whatever they do. And a leader that doesn't release the people around him really isn't a leader. As, mm -hmm. as um, not, not really, uh, a, a leader uh, appreciates that their chief asset are the people that they work with. And not only that, a good leader will always be collaborative and have a team approach. The one, mm. one man or pyramidal leadership has got to come to an end. That's not a biblical model. It's, it's, um, uh, it's you know, I mean, it rises and falls um, on, on, the, on the strength of that leader. And some of them get away with it and do fairly well, but it's not a good model. A collaborative leadership is important. So we're there for the good of the people. Therefore, it needs to be a humble leadership. And uh, a non-Christian leader, a good on them, we need all sorts of leaders, but should ask himself and maybe his wife, maybe those that are close to him, please help me in my leadership and, and the areas of my strengths and weaknesses. And if a leader isn't open to be corrected, if he isn't open um, to his spiritual fatherhood. And I was very fortunate to have Hal Oxley, who's well known to many as a spiritual father for nearly 30 years before he passed away last year at 103. And I mm. honor his memory and legacy. Um, but a good, a good leader will always have people around him that are fearful and won't be yes men or women. If, mm. a, if a leader can't take correction, um, then uh, he's destined for a fall. So, uh, they're just a few things off the off the top, Brilliant. and a leader, leader should also always be a learner. Uh, it mm. often amazes me as I talk to others and uh, young and old that sometimes I think there's nothing I can say to them; they seem to know everything. Yeah. Uh, uh, look, 
at my age, 76, I realize how little I know, how much I still am have to learn. And that's one of the reasons I Zoom with people all over the world to draw from their expertise and what they're doing. And some of the ones I draw from are just in the early 30s, but they're just doing wonderful things and I learn from them. It's brilliant, Ian. And, and you're such a, a model of that. And uh, people don't know you. Uh, I do know you and uh, you definitely uh walk what you're talking you uh you live that way and you learn and you move forward and you ask questions i think it's a great you definitely uh influenced me a lot in my leadership so I, I think you bring up a really interesting point there the hierarchical nature of leadership the authoritarian approach um it really is suffering uh in this age that we live in i mean again even in our church world um the amount of leaders that are falling across the globe um founders leaders um you know that, that that are of big churches or big ministries um that maybe as things fall apart it starts to appear that that they were very authoritarian or they didn't have people around them like you said or they weren't open to accountability or listening um it, it's it's a real tragedy but uh, I, I totally agree with you and it's been you know, it's been something that i've tried to listen to tried to look at try to reflect on with my own uh leadership and with my own team because uh, it just seems like there's a real obvious uh, cliff coming uh, for those that are, are unwilling to uh, live through the principles that you've just spoken about. Uh, it does seem inevitable that that style of um, hierarchical leadership runs into a brick wall eventually. Would you agree? Uh, I, I think it will, uh, personally. And as you say, there's been uh, the tragic news of so many key leaders, church and otherwise, that uh, have uh, tumbled and um, whatever we might, I don't know, fallen from grace, I don't know what you'd like to call it, but it's been a tragedy, not only for their own lives and marriages and families, but for those that they lead. And and worse still, I suppose, if, if there's a hierarchy of worseness, uh, is the discrediting of the church and of the name of Christ. Generally, it's not good news when there's a moral failure or marriage breakup or whatever in a, in a leader. So, uh, look, the pyramidal leader is open for um, great temptations uh, from within and from without. And um, he, he's going to struggle to survive if he, if he doesn't discover a more corporate collaborative approach mm. and a humble approach. So what, what is it about those leaders that they don't look to that? Because... I'm sure to you, it seems very obvious. Um, you've, you've, you're involved with collaboration and just see the fruit of it every day and how powerful it is. Uh, we know in the Bible that talks about uh, wisdom in the counsel of many and, and, and the New Testament is very much a collaborative, unified movement of people playing all their different roles. Um, you, you know, you see uh, Acts, Acts chapter 15 and there's many different leaders in the church with, with different uh, gifts. Uh, You've got the Council of Jerusalem and you've got Paul and Peter and uh, the senior pastor of the church in Jerusalem, if you like, James is there and they, and they all bring their different um, thoughts and opinions uh, about the circumcision issue. And then there's collaboration and there's strategy. And But it's funny, even in our Christian world where we should understand these things like humility and accountability and whatever, um, it seems to be a problem for all leaders that when sometimes when there's power, I suppose when there's position, uh, when there's a wage, uh, there seems to be other things that become priorities and maybe blind or fog uh, the vision of that leader and doesn't allow them to, to, to see the future, to see the bigger picture. Uh, has that been your experience or do you see other things that, that, that get in the road that lead to this uh, issue? Um, yeah, that's, that's a good question. Look, I probably don't know lot of these significant leaders that have um, fallen. Um, you know, I've met many, many um, unknown pastors that have had moral failures and um, marriage breakups and family difficulties, etc. Many. Uh, look, it, it's a bit hard to say. Um, I, I think for the very significant leaders uh, who are well-known names that have um, have um, not survived. I, 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 you know, Deuteronomy says that when you're blessed, um, take, be careful. It doesn't go to your head, my interpretation or translation. <laughs> uh, be careful you don't become prideful. 
And I mm -hmm. think that some of these insignificant leaders are very gifted people and have achieved much. And it's wonderful what they've achieved. And that makes it all the more tragic. But the danger with achievement is that you actually think somehow you've had a part in it and it hasn't yeah. been God's grace alone through your gifting that he gave you. Uh, you know, you didn't give yourself the gifting. God gave you the gifting. You might have developed mm. it to some degree, hopefully. Uh, mm. So, um, look, pride is pride always comes before a fall. Uh, mm. And I think uh, that's the well-known leaders, the ones that are unknown to just in every town and city that have not, you know, more than half pastors don't survive through their 50s into their 60s in ordained ministry. So statistically, yeah, well. we're told, and that's a tragedy. I think there's all sorts of uh, reasons, but mostly personal. Uh, mm. You know, there's burnout from overwork. Uh, they're probably idealistic expectations that they can't meet. They put on themselves or the church puts on them and they burn out. Uh, but often marital conflict uh, and then, of course, the pressures of um, sexual pressures, etc. cetera, uh, pardon me, and uh, other pressures that they, they, they're not in an environment of corporiety of doing life together where they can get help, humble help. I mean, it, the great joys of my life in retrospect, is being able to go feeling pretty desperate to a fellow brother pastor and asking to pray for me and help me and to confess my sins to him. In fact, mm. uh, uh, one time we had about 40 or 50 pastors in a room and we spent four days praying and one whole day all confessing uh, sins and a lot of them sexual pressures and temptations and we all wept and prayed for one another, but it brought a great cleansing over the whole group and brought forward uh, momentum into our city because of this new place of, um, of uh, humility. You know, the Bible says it, confess your sins one to the other that you might be healed. And that's not just a physical healing from a sickness, that's healing uh, from every area, psychological healings, a family or, or, rec or relational breakdowns. It's a healing and the confession of sins marks repentance and humility and that allows for a whole body and a whole person to go forward. Mm, fantastic, just great wisdom again, Ian. I think that the whole point of uh, pride comes before a fall, uh, Christian or not, we all we all know that. Uh, and uh, so therefore the antidote to that is really humility and being able to go to others and share and uh, just a great point. So I just, I have to ask you as we maybe uh, finish off, uh, a little bit about your family. I know that when uh, we've spent time together, I've asked you similar questions, but uh, as a as a parent of four young children, uh, I'm always well, looking for parents. No, sorry, I've got four. Um, no. You've got five. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm always looking for uh, insights uh, to, to, to parenting and uh, parenting lessons, and uh, it's a real challenge. But you've got five. That's exactly right. And you've got, did you say 17 grandchildren? 19. 19. Great. And grandchildren and great grandchildren. Yeah, four of them. Four of them are great grandchildren. Wow. Wow. So 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 maybe uh, I, I really view leadership as something that, um you know, starts personally. You got to lead yourself. Um, but really, leadership begins in, in the home. And I'm sure you agree with that. And, uh, you know, what have been your lessons as a great grandfather, grandfather, father over the years? Uh, when it comes to parenting or leading within the family? Um, look, first of all, uh, Betty and I uh, often wonder why or how our five kids turned out half sane, uh, let alone fruitful and effective and flourishing, uh, as they all <laughs> seem to do off and on, mostly uh, ups and downs. Uh, look, um, the grace of God is, I, I mean, I'm not just being um, silly or cute, uh, it's a real factor. It's the chief factor because Betty and I know just how um, unwhole we both have been, how God's brought healing into our lives and our marriages through issues and crises and, um, and gain the good graces of brothers and sisters that we've um, got help from. Uh, the grace of God has just been amazing. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that I've been fortunate to um, be around uh, other fathers and mothers but to be taught uh, in the 70s, starting to realize that parenting didn't come just natural, that uh, we had to learn a biblical way. And so I bought every book, listened to 
tapes, went and heard speakers. Uh, I think Betty got a little over all the um, books and um, things I was reading about trying to be a better parent or father. <laughs> uh, but it brought a lot of discussion and our church really emphasized it probably for a 10 or so year period, really, really emphasized it. And that uh, became wonderful. So I'm thankful for what I've learned. And uh, I mean, I still need to learn it because we've been far from perfect, far from lots of mistakes, lots of problems, but the grace of God brings us through. <laughs> I think in a couple of other factors is that um, by God's grace, again, he gave me a vision that God wants to change cities and nations. And our whole family were always involved in that vision. So our family mm -hmm. table, all our discussion, our church, uh, we're all in a big vision together, not a small vision. Uh, you know, it's a small vision just to run a local church. It's a small vision just to be a good man in a suburb. That's great. Do all those things. We need that. But Jesus gave us an impossible vision. Go disciple nations. So we should mm. always start with the impossible, unachievable vision of God um, and then be humble and practical where we live and just do our little things well and say, but keep in mind, God, we're praying for cities, we're praying for nations, we're praying for your glory. So we always had a big vision. I think the other, the last thing I'll mention that's very practical, when our first son, Lyle, who you know, turned 13, I was fortunate to read something about uh, Proverbs, is it 22.6 or 24.6, I keep forgetting. It says, raise up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And this teaching said that's not just teaching them Sunday school and praying with them in the Bible. That's teaching them to find out what their gifts are, train yeah. them in their gifts, and when they're old, they will not depart from it. So it, all of our five children, when they became teenagers, we tried to detect and discern what are their gifts and help them in their gifts and made that the priority of their education. More important than the three R's, what are their gifts? Mm -hmm. How do we train them in their gifts? And then we've seen all of them flourish in their gifts since uh, with ups wow. and downs and uh, not perfectly. So I'm a great advocate of saying, um, I always ask everybody, what's your gifts and passion? And it's always hurts me uh, when uh, even old people still don't know how God's wired them and created them because yeah. you flourish and you're excited about life. You're energized when you flourish in the God given gifts and wiring and DNA that he's given you. Yeah. Fantastic. So you're talking there. Uh, it's something I've spoken with people about before, uh, especially with teenagers, helping them find their spark. And uh, it sounds like you're talking about the same thing there, the gift, the spark, the passion, um, yep. helping them find. So, so, so you put a lot of energy in your parent in parenting your children into helping them understand what that was and uh, grow in that, learn about that. And, and I suppose as a parent, facilitate that uh, passion of theirs is that kind of what happened uh, yes yes but very imperfectly i mean our, yeah. <laughs> our oldest boy was fairly easy and obvious our second boy uh didn't do well at school at all probably in retrospect dyslectic um he didn't like school and school didn't like him um, but unfortunately i thought initially you know he should finish school and um, tried to get the education thumped into him. And I was, a, you know, I, it was a Christian school. I was the chair of the board. And uh, so I really <laughs> tried to make this work. Uh, but even though I had early indications of his gifting, I was blinded to see it. But then uh, there came a time he said, Dad, if I get an apprenticeship, can I leave school? And I was probably a bit frustrated with him at that stage. And I said, yes, uh, unknown to me, he had already got his own apprentice, master builder in the church. And, um, but the day he picked up a hammer, uh, he was a changed boy and he's never looked back. 25 wow. years on, uh, he runs his own building business, Shelton Homes, and is one of the respected builders of the city and wins awards for his design of Queenslander houses uh, wow. for what he's doing. And yet at school, he was a failure. So it was a huge lesson to me. I was late in uh, helping him discover what he really was good at, and that was with his hands. And, you know, he's since he's designs houses, he's that gives quotes, he's become a successful businessman in our city, very respected. And so um, uh, to, I didn't do everything perfectly, uh, Caleb, uh, trial and error. <laughs> Now they tell they tell me grandparenting is even better. So what what what, what how do you play a role 
you know, how do you play your role well as a grandparent or a great grandparent? How, what have you learned there? <laughs> a friend of mine says grandchildren are the reward for not killing your own children. Um, <laughs> uh, look, um, look, we do our best. Uh, it's very, very different. I mean, I love being a grandfather and I'm probably, I, I always feel like uh, my job is to spoil them and to teach them to break the rules that their mother is telling them to keep. Uh, so I've, I've got to be careful uh, there. I get um, unpopular with my daughters and daughter-in-laws. Um, but look, it's just great being a grandparent. And look, I, I don't know that we do it all that well and perfectly, but we just pray for them, love them, keep open hearts to them, encourage them, take a lot of interest in them uh, as best we can. And yeah. um, and just very thankful for our family get-togethers. It's just lovely when 30-odd of us are able to, but we're starting to scatter. We've got some in overseas countries now, different places, but um, quite a few of us still around here. We just do our best. Um, uh, I don't I don't think I'm a particularly great grandfather or a good grandfather uh, when I see a lot of others, but we, we just do our best. Well, um, what we've heard from you today uh, has been just fantastic, and I'm sure some of those principles you've shared do come through your grandparenting and everything. And uh, I, I'm just always fascinated by uh, how you've raised five kids and you've given it a great go and um, that they've all done so well and uh, uh, kept their faith in God and things like that. Uh, it's just very impressive. And uh, it's, I really appreciate you sharing a little bit about your family. It's very personal. And uh, also just sharing about uh, leadership today, what you're doing, uh, movement day, we'll, we'll, we'll link those things in the description if people want to go and uh, look further into those things. So it's just been incredible wisdom, Ian. I'm going to re-listen to this just for my own learning and benefit. It's just been a great podcast with some just great wisdom there. So really appreciate you uh, coming on today and uh, talking to us. Thank Caleb, you it's a joy. May God bless you. Thank you, Matt. I trust you were impacted by that Leadership Lessons podcast. I would love to hear your thoughts about today's podcast. Please comment down below and please review the podcast and share it with a friend. Doing this inspires us and helps others to find the podcast. See you next time.